Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Bioinformatics CRO podcast. I'm your host, Grant Belgard, and joining me today is Razib Khan. Razib, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure, Grant. I am the director of science at the Insight Home Institute. I run a few blogs. Um, I do a lot of random things. So I run a blog called Gene Expression, GeneXP.com. I run a blog called Brown Pundits, brownpundits.com. I run a podcast for the Insight Home Institute, The Insight. So just check on Stitcher, iTunes, whatever. And I also run a podcast called Brown Pundits. That's just like a fun podcast on the side. Um, I have a Twitter, Razib Khan. That's basically it. I do some other things. I do some consulting. You know, um, Grant and I have like a conflict of interest. Maybe we should just disclose. I have worked for Grant in the past. Yeah. So I just, I have my, my fingers in a lot of different things. Yeah. I, I love your blogs. Highly recommend your blogs. Uh, I know I've kept up with them for a long time and a lot of other people have as well. Um, so what made Razib Razib? Yeah. Uh, so what, um, a combination of genes and environment. <laughs> if I want to think like a behavior geneticist, so I do have a pedigree of, uh, I have three siblings. And I can tell you that there's much more concordance between my youngest brother and myself, though we didn't really grow up together because I'm way older than him. So that does suggest that there's a strong heritable component of uh, some of my tendencies. But in terms of like growing up where I grew up, um, I grew up in Eastern Oregon. So I think that gives me a very different perspective than a lot of people I've met in academia uh, who grew up, say, in like upper middle class suburbs. I grew up in quote unquote cowboy country. Uh, There were literal cowboys at my high school in terms of that's what they did after school as their job. So, um, you know, I have like a different cultural perspective. I consider myself a Northwesterner, but I've lived in urban areas my adult life. So, you know, I've seen the startup scene. I've lived in the Bay Area, I've lived in Austin. Um, and so what made me me is kind of like having this peripatetic life background, I think, where I lived in rural areas. My dad was a college professor and then lived in urban areas. And I saw like the global economy. I see the global economy. Uh, my family's from Bangladesh, but, you know, I'm obviously an American. And in terms of my intellectual interest, I started in biochemistry as an undergraduate because, um, you know, my family is Asian American. And if you're going to do biology, it has to be biochemistry or biomed, but they don't really understand it. But I was always attracted to genetics. So I actually did a fair amount of molecular genetics um, as electives for the biochemistry, which, you know, like I biochemistry was in the chemistry department. It wasn't in the biology department. A respectable degree. Basically, what we always say is uh, we had to take physical chemistry. Okay. Um, which like, you know, that's, that wasn't an e- physical, at, at my university, physical chemistry was a very difficult course. And so that was like, we took physical chemistry, we're legit chemists. Okay. Um, so, you know, that's why I started, but eventually like I, I faded back towards uh, genetics, genomics. Uh, I, I'm not really good with my hands in terms of like doing the pipetting and stuff like that. So bench work was never my thing. I worked in IT for a while. Um, and then eventually I went to grad school at UC Davis. I did not finish. So I'm still um, everything but dissertation. And I worked in evolutionary genomics, mostly with mammals. Um, and I do a lot of work with humans. I've worked with personal genomics companies. Um, I have a lot of interest in history. And so that gives me a unique skill set in being able to do the data science, you know, doing some algorithm writing, as well as knowing basically what outputs are intelligible to the end user, which can be kind of difficult um, if you're a technical science person. Um, anyone who has ever seen an error output on a computer understands that that can be a problem with the technical person because the error output does not tell a normal person anything except scares them, you know? And so um, that is a skill, um, being able to think about what the consumer needs, definitely, that I bring, I think, to the table. And where, where do you think you're heading uh, in the future? I mean, obviously you have very 
broad-based interests and, and you found your way to science communication platforms and is that something you're planning on, on doubling down on there? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it depends on what, you know, like I'm using a startup term, using what, what, your, what your bandwidth is, right? You know, I still do write um, for various publications when I get the chance. Um, I don't do it really for the money. There's not that much money in it. But uh, who else is going to, you know, speak about what I speak about? If there's another Razib Khan that's out there, just tell me and, uh, you know, I'll give him my notes and I'll just move on. Because I got three kids. I'm a busy guy. You know what I'm saying? So I, I do it partly because, you know, who else is going to do that? Um, so I, but the Insightome Institute, like part of its um, purview is to do the science communication. And that's what we, Spencer, Spencer Wells and I, uh, my boss, who's the director, um, we do the Insight podcast. And so, yeah, there's still a lot of science communication that is to be done and that I do expect to be doing. But I also, um, you know, do work in consumer genomics, as you know. Um, you know, I do a fair amount of contracting and consulting with people. And um, I do have some experience in that space that I like to provide. I am trying to actually finish some papers, which I don't know if I should talk about, but you know, um, I'll just put it out there. I am trying to finish some papers on some um, topics that nobody else seems to be really interested in and get that out there. So I'm trying to do like a bunch of different things. So um, I'm not like in a situation where I have like a straightforward, what am I gonna do with my next 20 years? Um, the past 20 years have been pretty surprising to me. I mean, who who knew what genomics-based data science was 20 years ago? It wasn't a thing. So what's going to be a thing 20 years from now? And I think uh, a lot of people feel this way. Um, so, you know, my goal is to be nimble and, um, you know, just go with the punches and just try to survive in this world because it's pretty tough right now. You'll find your way. <laughs> so speaking of consumer uh, genomics companies, uh, what, what's your take on what's been happening in that space in recent years and uh, where do you think things are heading? Well, so, you know, I, I did a podcast with Libby Copeland, um, Lost Families, and we talked a little bit about that on the Insight in April. Uh, if listeners want to look that up, just do, you know, type Libby Copeland. She has a book out, Lost Families. And so she asked me that and we had a discussion a little back and forth because she's done all this research in consumer genomics. And I know the people, you know, I have friends who work at 23andMe, friends who work in Ancestry. You know, my boss founded the Genographic Project. I actually have consulted for Linda Avey, the co-founder of 23andMe. I consider her a friend. Um, she's a really good person, by the way. I'm just, just going to put that out there. I can't say anything bad about her. But um, so I've had a lot of discussions. So it seems like there's a, there's, there's, um, a leveling off of growth in that field. So why is that? Some people say, oh, it's because of privacy concerns. Other people say, well, I mean, it's kind of market saturated for the initial wave of consumers. I suspect it's both. Uh, I do think the privacy concerns are starting to spook a lot of people and who they're spooking is the next marginal consumer, right? So the initial consumers that were going to get it, they were going to get it no matter what. You know, you could like say, oh, we're going to use your DNA and we're actually going to release it out to the cloud in a tarball and everyone can access it. And there's like a core group of people that just don't care. They're still going to do it. Okay. So those people are insensitive to that. As you get further and further out through word of mouth, because these are Christmas gifts. These are, you know, things people talk about over Thanksgiving in terms of their results. A lot of awkward results sometimes, you know, sometimes. And just awkward. to interject here, Grace, uh, who's helping us out. Uh, with this podcast right now, uh, got as a Christmas gift from me and I, uh, I'm home, uh, ancestry oh, okay. kit. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, eat your own dog food, right? And I've been on all the platforms. Oh, I've been on all the platforms. Um, so, you know, there's ups and downs to all of them and, you know, it's, it's an interpretation service. They're all interpretation service. So, you know, the killer app of the past decade that's just gone by 
Um, was genealogy and ancestry uh, to a great extent. Um, the medical aspect hasn't really been unlocked yet. Uh, I do think it will be. So right now we have about 10% of Americans on these platforms, okay, 30 million people. Probably a little bit more than 30 now, but it's really leveled off, but that's about 10% of Americans. I don't believe by 2030, we're gonna be any lower than say 75%, okay? I think a lot of young kids will be genotyped. Um, sequenced low coverage various coverage sequencing um you know grant you know you work in the medical genetic space medical genomics you know the gains that can be had by detecting you know novel variants variants of unknown significance in very young children if they have some idiopathic condition and these are not most children but there's enough of them that a lot of hospitals are already doing this with quote mystery conditions for newborns because newborns cannot give you um, any feedback really of uh, what's going on with them, right? So these are niche cases. They're, they're little segments, but the segments keep on expanding. So, you know, those of us that remember the internet in the 1990s, which I, uh, Grace probably does not remember, you know, but, but it was like super exciting for a lot of us. And um, we had no idea what people were going to do. We had like fantasies like I will, I will tell you, Grant. Like I think I'm a little older than you. I remember getting on Gopher, which is kind of a pre-web thing. It was like um, a text interface, and I remember reading about Ethiopia on the CIA Gopher page for Ethiopia, and I was super excited because I could read about Ethiopia without opening an encyclopedia or going to the library. That's what I thought the internet was. I mean, that's what the internet was in 1993, and now. Um, uh, the internet's a lot different, you know? I mean, now the internet's podcasts, Twitter, a, a lot of stuff that is good and also considerably bad stuff, but different than what I was expecting. And so this is, you know, 25 years, 25 years since I got on the internet, you know, and I couldn't have guessed what we see around. I mean, like some things I could have guessed, but a lot of it is like super surprising to me. Um, and so I think with genomics, let's say 2010 is the same as 1995. Like that's when 23andMe really came out with a big marketing push and people started talking about, um, you know, personal genomics and it was, it was pretty low boil, I think for the first five years. And then it really like jumped up right before 2019. A lot of this is marketing spend. If you look at Ancestry's marketing spend, as their marketing spend increased, there was a linear response with purchasing, uh, purchases. I, I know through the grapevine, the former CEO of Ancestry, he kind of admitted this. Basically, they did not expect that there was going to be a linear response to their marketing spend. I think it was a little bit more than linear because word of mouth triggered and kicked in at some point. And so it just became one of those gifts, like a $100 price point, like $99, $79, perfect price point. Black so, Fridays. Yeah, have. yeah. And so it just became a thing. And like YouTube unboxings of Ancestry kits became a thing. So it's become part of our culture but it hasn't become ubiquitous. And so I think that's the next step, becoming ubiquitous. I think medical is going to help make it be ubiquitous, but the problem with medical and consumer is you don't want to buy a kit that tells your mom that she's gonna develop breast cancer by the time she's 60, okay? Like, I mean, telling people that they have health risks is not a feel good gift. Um, so I, you know, they need to figure that out. I'm not a marketing person. Uh, it's not my my job, but um, I think I think probably some sorts of distribution deals with hospitals is really the way to go. But I, I think that's the future. And also, I wouldn't be surprised if 
you know, some European country with, you know, socialist or semi-socialist medicines, just like, you know, instead of building out our own genomic service uh, for our, for our citizens, um, let's just contract to Ancestry or 23andMe um, and have them build something for us, turnkey, and then maybe the data is stored in that those countries with like some bureaucrat somewhere. I know, for example, Estonia is trying to do things um, to provide genetic um, kits and services to its people just as part of their national health. Because I know a scientist who is like on the, the government board and at a conference, he came up to me and started asking me questions about it because he, they're like, we're serious. We're a small country. We can scale it. And they have really, really good distribution and fluency with information technology because this is what it is. Genomics is information technology. So speaking of data protection and distribution, where do you think those genomes will be housed, right? Uh, there's yeah. been a lot of ideas about this, uh, and many of them are in conflict with one another. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I think it depends on the country. Um, in China, they're going to be housed where the government wants them to be housed, and the government's going to know everything about your genome. That's, you know, they're already like, they're already sampling males. Because they want to, you know, get genealogy, like you know, genetic profiles of potential criminals. Because twenty percent of or ninety percent of violent crimes are committed by men. Okay, so that's why they're targeting males. Um, and so in China, that's going to be like that. In Europe, they have the GDPR, um, like the uh, the it's like the data protection, the data protection law, GDPR. That's what genetic data is um, under. And different countries have like different ways they enforce it. So in France, genetic testing of the sort that we do in the United States for consumers is banned. Like they have to ship it to Belgium, drive to Belgium, and pick it up if they're like a French genetic genealogy fanatic. Okay, there are some. I think in Germany they've loosened it recently, but they also Germans have a um, fraught relationship with genetic science. So if it's anything related to human genetics, they are really terrified of it. And so that's that's kind of not a good market. But other European countries like like Scandinavia are much more open and much more. Um, enthusiastic. So how do they deal with the privacy? Um, one idea that Spencer and I have been kicking around is um, some sort of uh, encryption key where you're the only one that can unlock it, you know, which is, you know, kind of thing that is relatively common. And now with the blockchain and all these crypto, you know, companies, and so just cryptify, you know, your genome. So your genome never changes. So okay, you're the only one who wants who is able to unlock it that way. Of course, the problem is if you lose the key, it's gone. But then sequencing is pretty cheap too. Uh, so you could just redo it again. So I think, I mean, that's one solution. The, the issue with genomics that I would say is, you know, people, I mean, aside from somatic mutations, your sequence does not change, right? Your germline mostly doesn't change. There's a few mutations over time if you're male, whatever. Anyway, mostly it's there. So if someone has it, they have it forever. So my genotype, and a VCF of my whole genome sequence is actually publicly searchable. If anyone wants to search, Razib Khan genotype, you can find them. Um, I'm not like scared personally because I'm not an important enough person where someone would design a bioweapon to, <laughs> to come <laughs> after me. I mean, it's going to be way cheaper to hire a hitman, okay? Um, if I was the head of state... Do you, do you already have life insurance? <laughs> I do have life insurance. So, um, right. you know, but, uh, but if I was the head of state somewhere, um, it, there would be a concern. Right? Maybe, maybe. But bioweapons are expensive, kludgy, and not very effective. I, I'm not super worried about that. There will be a point where sequencing will be so cheap, and so many people have done it in so many different places, that I do wonder if privacy concerns will just disappear. Um, you know, we share a lot on social media about ourselves. Nobody seems super stressed about it, even though if you had talked to people, like 
couple of decades ago, they'd be like, um, that's creepy, you know? So, I mean, I, I wonder if people will be more chill about it in the future. One of the um, weak points uh, is hospitals. Uh, they're not very good about database data protection. Like they've, there've been traditionally problems with a lot of hospitals and they usually just pay a fine and then they're like, whatever. The issue is like, if you do your genome and they release it by mistake, once and done. I mean, pay, I mean, that's just yeah. It's it's out there. It's out in the wild. And so um, I don't really know the long term prospects of, for privacy. I think um, in the short term, I think the privacy, yeah, it's feasible uh, if you care. Like I don't care, but if you care, um, there are services you can go to that are very bespoke, uh, where I think like you can pretty pretty sure trust they're deleting your data and stuff like that but that's not going to be the thousand dollar genome or the three hundred dollar genome that's going to be people that will charge you a premium um because they're going to validate everything in a way where it's like you know that i mean they're deleting everything they're sending you a physical copy there are things you can do like that right i think in the short term we don't know for sure, but I, I strongly suspect that a lot of consumers are going to be okay with a lot less privacy than you would think. Yeah, it seems to be. I mean, I, uh, so I'm on 23andMe, I guess, under really a, a pseudonym. Uh, yeah. I had paid cash for a prepaid card, had the kit shipped to another state, an address that was completely unconnected to me. Uh, yeah. And uh, through a series of <laughs> coordinated happenings, I uh, got the kit in my own hands. Um, nice. But of course, these things can be triangulated through family members and whatnot. So it's not uh, foolproof. Right? Yeah, if you're a white American, and it's highly likely that you are easy to identify. Like it's like 95% likely now, just because there's enough people in there. Like if you're adopted and you don't want to know who your relatives are, do not do this. Right. Because you'll automatically get a match, and you maybe you can like delete it from your mind who you matched with, but that's going to give you information automatically. So when you have 10% penetration, that's penetration of almost all the pedigrees for white Americans. There's still some gaps for black Americans, although that's closing and other groups, but really the, the way the statistics of this work is you don't need to sample that much to get all the pedigrees. Right. Interesting. So based on the mumblings you hear, what things do you expect to transpire in the coming years that you think relatively few people are other people are expecting um well, you know i don't know because i it's difficult because like i don't talk to normal people about genetics because anyone who i know they know you know what i'm saying they they know everything because i just talk to them about it i'm just like oh yeah this is gonna happen so for example um like so for example i talked to my friend rob henderson and he's a prominent person he's a writer uh he happens to be from kind of a lower class background and he went to yale um, he doesn't know who his biological father was. Um, so he's getting his PhD in social psychology, I think, uh, at Oxford. He's a smart guy. Uh, and he was shocked when I told him, don't do a DNA test if you don't want to know who your dad's family is, because you'll automatically know. And he was like, really? And I was like, yeah, I mean, your dad's a generic white American. It's in there. You'll automatically know if you, if you're like ambivalent, which he was, um, he, he shouldn't do that. So he didn't know, right? So for example, um, I think I told Grant this story. Uh, I don't remember if I did because it's a really weird story. And one of my friends was asking about, well, he heard his dad, he's from a small town in the Midwest, okay? He heard his dad had had an affair and he had a half sibling. 
And he's like, should I use one of these tests to find this half sibling? Do you think what's, what are the chances? I'm like, oh, you're going to find, you're going to find something like not necessarily the half sibling, but you could like figure things out of who's related to who and all this stuff. And um, he did get a match of someone who was looked like a half sibling, but it turned out it wasn't a half sibling. It was his stepdad's sister. So he found out that his stepdad was his biological dad. He didn't end up finding out his biological dad. And so he told me this on Thanksgiving and he said he's not going to tell his mom and he's not going to tell his stepdad who he hates. And so um, these are the things that are going to come out. And obviously his I don't even know if, his stepdad knows because I think his mom was probably, you know, his mom might not be know about his parentage. Okay. And, but my friend's problem is he saw the match with his step aunt. So she probably saw the match with him. So don't open something that you don't know how to like, it's like a Jack in the box is coming at you. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised because the, the result, and like, sometimes it's funny um, it's funny and silly where it's like, I had a friend and she's like, you know, classic Southern California blonde and her husband, who's 100% Irish American, but she's like, I think he's part black because his features. Okay. I was like, well, you guys should just do the test together. So if you know, because they want to have kids, it turns out they both had like a hemochromatosis, they're carriers for something. So it's, it's not a big deal, but whatever. Um, but here's the funny thing. He turned out to be 100% Irish. She was 2% African American. She's 2% African. And so we figured out that there's a blank spot in her mom's genealogy in the early 19th century, you know? And so this is not like a shocking thing. It was just a big laugh that she was looking for black ancestry in her husband. And it turned out that she herself had had an ancestor who'd passed from black to white in the early 19th century, which is not like super uncommon, you know? Um, and so and, and that's silly. That doesn't affect a lot of people. But I haven't, you know, with the genealogy thing, you might think it's silly. But a lot of people, it shakes them in weird ways, which, you know, I didn't find anything super shocking. I found some surprising things, but I didn't find anything super shocking. So I can't relate to that personally. And honestly, who really cares who your ancestors were? That's just my personal opinion about me. But a lot of people, it's a much deeper thing. And, you know, there's all these stories that go along with it. So I consult on um, Skip Gates' show. I didn't mention that. I consult on that his uh, DNA show on PBS. And so um, George R. R. Martin, uh, he has the thing where his paternal grandfather is Italian and he's from Jersey and he's got this Italian background. But actually, it turns out that his paternal grandfather um, was not his biological paternal grandfather. His paternal grandmother was a secretary for a Jewish guy. And that's his biological grandfather. So we have to we have we found that out through the genetic testing because he was 25 percent Jewish, not 25 percent Italian. Now. I'm only bringing this up because I don't know if Martin, I didn't watch the episode. I don't know how he reacted, but he always had this shtick. He was talking about like, well, he was like Martino or something. And, you know, he's Italian and he's from Jersey. Well, he's got to, he can kind of keep the story because the way you're raised is the way you're raised. But his understanding of like being Italian, it's going to be, I don't know if he wants to bring up the fact, well, I'm also part Jewish. And, you know, uh, there's just, there's a lot of things like that, that, that changed family stories. And that's not super significant. The disease stuff can be super significant. And I've, um, I've had to talk to friends about stuff they found out, which was surprising, which was sobering. Because the disease stuff is never, 
oh, it turns out I'm Superman and I have superpowers. That just, there's no gain of function mutation that makes you, you have a secret invisibility power that you didn't know about. So it's never like positive, really. I mean, for some people it's positive where they didn't have the risk for an autosomal dominant, you know? But really, mostly it's just like but a bad of course, thing. something like that wouldn't be shocking, right? It's uh, yeah, it, yeah. You know, you you kind of do, do your little punnett squares or whatever. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So for for other people, um, I have found out things, and a lot of people they don't make they don't connect two and two. So um, I, I'm not always aware what diseases are and aren't genetic. So I found out, like, I'll give you a your listeners a concrete example. A friend of mine is at high risk for cataracts, um, very high risk, like for early, basically like, you know, he's going to go blind early, probably they're gonna have to do surgery. Hopefully they have a correction. But anyway, his, um, his family's from India and one of his parents went blind, but that's just really common in India to the very eye infections and stuff. And so that's what he assumed it was, um, some, cause he had you know, that parent had an eye infection of some sort. And so the doctor actually said like, oh, it's probably because you had the eye infection and that's causing the blindness and all this stuff. And so that was what my friend knew. And, you know, he's a college educated person. He has a science degree and he had just assumed that was what it was. But um, he got his parent tested, he got him tested and they both have some sort of autosomal uh, dominant where it's like you have like a 50% chance of getting cataracts by the time you're 50. He's 37 now. So um, anyway, you know, it's just something that's on his mind. He has a 50% chance. He has like a 90% chance by the time he's like 65, whatever. I, you know, and I haven't kept up with like, you know, the surgeries and other things he might have to do to not go totally blind. But that was an awkward conversation because when he got the testing, I was like, oh, there's like an only small probability that there's going to be anything that's going to be a problem, which is true. Your prior is you're not going to discover anything new. But there's going to be a minority of people that are going to discover the new thing, and it's not going to be a little new thing. If it's a disease thing, it's going to be a big thing. Um, if it's going to add value, because you know, knowing that you have a 1.5 greater odds of type 2 diabetes is not that big of a deal. Um, that's not really actionable. It's not going to change you very much. But knowing that you have like, you know, 25 times odds of getting cataracts by the time you're 20 or by the time you're 50 is a big deal. And um, I kind of felt kind of crappy because. I told him honestly that don't worry, bro. Like you're not going to find anything. If you don't know, you know, you're not going to, you don't, you don't know anything in your family. you know it from your family background. That's literally what I said, but there are things like this that happen, you know? So um, I think this sort of stuff is going to affect our lives in the next decade. Now, how that's going to affect, you know, consumer purchasing decisions. I don't know because that's just an awkward sell, but the kits and the tests are going to get from, you know, the people that are deploying them to the people that have to use them. And that's going to go back to the doctors. It's going to go back to like the health healthcare system that has to happen so that people can make better decisions with their lives. And I kind of find, sound like an infomercial here, but that's basically what it is, right? Like it's in, informational to people why you would want to do this. Now, some people, they want to put it off as long as possible. That's a choice. Um, in some countries, they're not going to give you the choice. I, I'm 90% sure in, in Britain, they're not going to give you the choice. You know, because uh, the national health healthcare system is soup to nuts. They take care of you top to bottom. And so they're invested in you knowing as early as possible so they can make the decision for you. They can kind of nudge you, you know, because they're already nudging people. Um, and so they, they really want to nudge you hard, I think, if they find out that you have certain risks, certain um, 
dispositions and they don't want you know you to make life decisions that will get you really ill because then they're on the hook for it well certain hmos might might be the same way kaiser yeah the issue with hmos in the united states is they're very very sensitive and vulnerable to bad public relations okay when you have a government monopoly they're far less sensitive to bad public relations as long as the government doesn't cut their funding you know they're fine uh, that's the downside of a monopoly that's the downside of socialized medicine you know run by the government there's there's no there's no way you have leverage against it aside from through the government itself um, the upside is they can make some unilateral decisions i do think some a lot of innovation might actually happen in europe because it's a monopoly and people are scared in the United States. People are scared over across the whole world of genetic science, partly because of Gattaca and the Nazis and all this stuff. But, you know, used correctly, it can make your life better. And so how do you get people over the hump? Well, in a system where the government has socialized the cost, you as an individual don't have the final choice on everything, you know? And I think that might allow certain innovation to happen and then eventually comes back to the United States as people see oh, they're not using it to round up the genetically unfit. And if they are using it to round up the genetically unfit, then they're not gonna, we're not gonna do that, right? So I'm just saying that, you know, we're gonna see experimentation across the whole world with this sort of science and with this sort of technology. And we're gonna see what works and what doesn't work and how things work differently, you know? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens in China in this space. That's a word for it. That's a word for <laughs> it. Interesting, yeah. So where, where do you think science is, is heading and, and, and the ways that we do science uh, over the next one to two tech decades, right? Uh, tech mm -hmm. and all the knock-on social mm -hmm. effects of tech are, is kind of revolutionizing everything. Uh, yeah. What do you think yeah. this impact and, 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 and the broader you know, political impact will be on, yeah. on science and the conduct of science? I mean... It's weird, like science has, has had like multiple phases. Science and technology has had multiple phases of enthusiasm and doom and fear. So Sputnik era, enthusiasm. 1970s, the environmentalist movement, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think like in the 80s, it, 80s and then into the internet, early internet era. Um, I mean, uh, you know, not to be the old guy, but I remember like 1995 to 2000 and oh my God, like we were so optimistic about the internet, um, you know, we didn't realize at the time democratized the world right <laughs> yeah like it's like oh i could talk i can talk to somebody in ecuador i specifically remember having a chat to somebody in ecuador and i'm told my friends the next day i talked to somebody in ecuador it was like so amazing and now in 2020 it turns out i didn't anticipate like how toxic twitter would be how social media is used to destroy people all of these things like you can go back and read about it like people did not anticipate that like we didn't understand the human capacity for depravity. And I'm using that in a very broad, broad sense. You know, like Facebook has been used to coordinate ethnic cleansing in some countries. Like we didn't anticipate that. We thought it would bring people together. And now today, I think a lot of people, when they're not on the web, when they're not on the internet, they're happier. Like being disconnected is a thing. I mean, when I get an email, it's, it's a now what? sort of situation. Whereas like 25 years ago, or tw even 20 years ago, I was like, who emailed me? 
you know? You got me ill. Yeah, it was like exciting. It was exciting. Like, oh, my girlfriend's emailing me. Like, I remember like that was a big thing. It's like, oh, will she email me today? Even though we saw each other every day. So, I mean, that was like an exciting thing. And now today it's just like, I just don't want to be bothered. They're just like, I get a lot of requests because I'm like, quote, public, I'm a public person. And so I get a lot of direct messages. And sometimes I, re- I try to respond, but sometimes it's just like, I just can't respond. People have all these questions and all these requests and I just can't deal with it. So it's it's made the whole world accessible to me, but now I'm accessible to the whole world, you know? And so um, that's that's a downside of information technology that we didn't anticipate. So, you know, what about, what about genetics? Um, I don't think that we know all of the consequences of knowing all of your relatives. You know, we've talked for decades, I think, in genetic science of like, okay, like how is this going to affect dating? Um, so I've never done internet dating or anything like that. I've been non-single since the year 2003, right? So it's like, this is all like abstract for me, but I can see a situation where, you know, like in the Jewish community, everyone knows of the tie sacks carrier, you know, you don't want to marry somebody with that. Well, just like automatically with your dating profiles, do, um, do an intersection with carriers so that, you know, I mean, a lot of people are just on, you know, if you're on Tinder, you're probably not thinking that far into the future. But if you're on Match.com, you might be, you know? And so, you know, depending on your level of seriousness, you might want to exchange that information ahead of time. Um, it's more efficient. I mean, unless you want to go through IVF. <laughs> yeah, just get it. Yeah, just get, just, just get it. Just get it out of the way. Um, some people don't care. But, I mean, if you, want to, if you want to do, if you want to anticipate having to do pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which some people might have to do, Maybe just get that out of the way and don't have it be a surprise. I don't know. I mean, there's all sorts of weird things. Like some people have bad credit. Like, I mean, I don't, do you ask people immediately? Um, Probably not. I mean, there's things about people you don't ask immediately. And there's other things you do. I don't know if the genetic thing is going to be one you ask immediately. The issue with genetics that I always tell people though, is genetics is also something you see on someone's face. So you see me, you automatically kind of know where my ancestors are from. Um, My risk of being a cystic fibrosis carrier is quite low, you know? Like you just know that as a prior, right? So um, it's not like genetics is a total mystery. Just like you, you kind of know how much money someone makes by the car they drive and the way they're dressed, you know. Um, there's always information that you get from people, and it's how much you want to put out there. Um, the thing with genetics, though, is, um, I mean, you could fake a sequence, but really, I mean, I'm just saying, like, your genes are your genes. Like if you're being honest about it, and at some point we're probably going to have to be, we're probably going to have to do some validation services where like, this is like, it's like the SSL of the sequence. Cause what if someone sends you a fake sequence? Cause they don't want to tell you that they have some autosomal dominant. Okay. Like, it, like what if it's common in dating services and you carry the autosomal dominant for Huntington's and like, even if people aren't in it for a serious relationship, they just don't want to deal with it because that's kind of heavy. You know, I know people who um, I don't know them personally, but I know a woman whose sister has Huntington's and her nephew will not get tested because he has a 50 percent chance of being a carrier. You know, she tells him that he should be like super serious about protection then. Because he's not, she basically said he's not the most irresponsible kid. Um, and so, well, what if that's on dating profiles? What if you can check it? Um, I think a lot of people, it's just like when you, when you blackball people for like employment because their credit rating is bad. That's kind of unfair in a way. So is it unfair to not want to date somebody seriously that has Huntington's 
or is, is gonna because they're gonna develop Huntington's if they carry the autosomal dominant, right? So I mean, these are like social questions that we don't have to confront today because most people haven't gotten sequenced. And Huntington's, as as you guys know, it's like it's um it's a repeat, and so I'm not sure if it's gonna be on a genotype array. Like you'd have to do some sort of tagging, so it's not even trivial to just have it with your 23andMe, you know, even if they could provide it. Like it's it has to be like whole genome sequencing. So the technology is a little bit in the future, but it's going to be something we confront. Like if you are a person that has an autosomal dominant disease that's going to present later in life, that's pretty, that's pretty heavy. That's pretty heavy. And, and this is why um, a DNA test for Huntington's disease is not a feel-good consumer product. Like this is the problem. Yeah. So where do you think academic science is heading? So academic, so basically COVID-19 has accelerated certain things and the financial crisis in, in academia, it, that was going to happen because of demographics, because Zoomers are a much smaller generation than millennials, um, was going to happen, is, is happening now. Um, there are some departments that are laying off, um, mostly not in science. The STEM is not, STEM is not predominantly dependent on tuition money um, or liberal arts colleges. R1 universities get NIH and NSF. Um, so academic science is special in certain ways where there are certain types of innovation, certain creativity that occurs there that is really difficult to happen or really does not happen in industry because industry is more siloed, um, just the way the sociology works, right? You don't get the cross-fertilization in the seminars. It just doesn't happen. So there's a reason academic science is there. I do think academic science is getting too politicized. Um, well, what's the next consequence? One consequence is when people are looking to what, what to allocate resources to, um, the National Science Foundation, NSF, funds non-practical things. That's its goal. Um, it will have practical implications a lot of the times way down the line. But NSF is where you go if, um, if you're an ecology lab and you're not going to get funded by, you know, NIH, which you're not, um, and you can't get funding. I mean, there's, there's different ways, you know. So I think that will be cut. I think, I think trust in academia and faith in academia is declining. That means public academia, public academics will have problems because if you're in a red state, um, when they go to allocate budgets, they're gonna cut. Now, I know universities get a lot of funding from various sources. I don't really know how comfortable a lot of academic scientists are going to be with public-private partnerships, but that's probably gonna be a thing just to survive. Um, there are some universities, ag ag agricultural universities where I went to UC Davis, they were actually very happy with that and that's part of the tradition. Uh, Monsanto or whatever the company's called now, um, has a lot of projects there. But a lot of scientists and universities are not happy with that. Hopefully Nassim Taleb is not uh, listening to this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, um, if he is, he'll say we're morons and idiots. But, um, <laughs> but you know, Berkeley, for example, is very, very anti-Monsanto, anti-public-private. Um, you know, I've heard friends where it's like they were discouraged from ever looking into that because it would be seen badly kind of by their department. So, but I think they need to look at that because the funding is gonna be an issue. Um, there's also overproduction of scientists. Uh, they're not all going to like land in academic spots. Um, there's going to be a reduction in R2 universities, research two universities, liberal arts colleges that absorb some people. That means everyone's going to be competing for the same few spots. Um, they're already having, you know, a thousand applicants for one job. Um, so it's kind of seems a bit like a hellscape. Um, a lot of people are going to be really stressed and anxious. You know, in a way, academics are actually quite privileged. Um, when I was a grad student at UC Davis, I got the best health insurance I ever had, by the way, uh, because the UC system is part of Cal, the California buying system. 
And so they buy gold-plated insurance for everybody, at least for graduate students and above. And so um, there's a lot of good perks that come with it, yeah, even though people complain. And um, that's not a law of the universe. It's the way our American society works today to give people the leisure to study things that they love and that they're passionate about. Like I, I talked to um, some people on, um, on the Senate staff of a prominent Republican. I'm not going to name who, but you, you'll, you'd recognize the name. And uh, they were like, yeah, we can't defund the universities because they would say that we were like primitive barbarians. But the first chance we really get without us, without the media saying that, we'll do it. Yes. Well, it's been quite interesting. Um, <clears throat> as you mentioned, the that broad-based support has fallen apart in, in relatively recent times. Yeah, uh, very, yeah just, just recent years. And this, this politicization, uh, politicization has is nothing new in in the humanities and so on it's it is newer in terms of this the kind of openness of the contempt and things like this in in the sciences the whole atmosphere is very very hot house and hot houses uh they eventually burn out and so it will um you know what cannot be sustained won't be and i feel like that's going to be the issue in academia which might be good for industry uh, more people with with abilities and skills and talent will go into the private sector but um we're going to be losing something we're going to be losing some really curious creative people who might have gone in some impractical directions that would give us some real innovation do you think there'll be a decoupling uh, uh between traditional universities and funded research i think there will be more there will be more diversity of think tank research institutes um, and also, I think we seriously need to consider the European technical university. Um, technical universities exist to further technical knowledge, period, right? And, and that's fine. People would fund that. I mean, you can be a communist. Who cares if you're working in solid state physics and you're building a better microchip? Nobody cares, okay? That's your business, what your politics are. So I, uh, I I want to make sure we, we have some some time to talk about the elephant in the room before we uh, we wrap up COVID. <laughs> so what the hell happened? <laughs> How did we end up here? Where do you, and where do you think things are going? Yeah, I wrote an article in City Journal in April where I basically um, said it was elite. Um, so people can Google Razib Khan City Journal, but basically I said the elite systematic failure. And I mean I should have probably like emphasized Trump more if I was going to be totally honest, but I didn't probably because everything, when it becomes about Trump, it goes crazy. So I didn't say much about Trump in the piece. So my, my, my thesis is the American society as a whole is obsessed with symbolic, um, just kind of like, you know, like the postmodernist stuff where it's like all about like, oh, the word you use and the representation and the symbol. And that is actually what Trump is good at. He's good at, um, these nicknames but what, but what we really need to lead us right now is an engineer like someone that can do the cost versus benefit that can do the math um, that's not our political elite right now in fact our political elites mostly lawyers they're mostly talkers so um as as listeners know you can't debate covid away like you you you, you can't beat them by out arguing them by redefining them trump has kind of tried to do that a couple of times uh, you know, even into the middle of February, you were crazy 
um, you know, you were, you were like all the cool kids, all the blue checks on Twitter said you were crazy if you expressed worry. And I'm not talking about QAnon and MAGA Twitter. I'm talking about Vox and, you know, like Huffington Post people. They were saying like, oh, these Sil Silicon Valley guys are just weird. And it's only like, like anti-Chinese racism. And so they were more preoccupied about whether we were racist against Chinese people than whether there was a pandemic happening, right? COVID doesn't care about our categorizations. It doesn't care about our borders. It's just a force of nature. Um, it's like a typhoon. It's like a tornado. It's like an earthquake. We shouldn't be fighting COVID because it's impacting poor people or people of color. We should be fighting COVID because people are dying, period, right? It doesn't matter. Like my opinion, is it doesn't matter what their race or what their class, what country they're in, how old they are. Um, one of the elephants in the room of COVID is it really affects old people in nursing homes. Um, no offense to Americans or Europeans, because there was an article about Belgium. Um, it's kind of shocking to me when I think about it, what we do with old people by packing them into nursing homes and visiting them every now and then. Um, out of sight, out of mind. The mortality rates in some of these nursing, nursing homes in New Jersey or in Europe is terrifying large numbers of people are dying. They're dying miserably. They're dying horribly. This is why some of us were alarmist. And the fact that we're not talking more about this says a lot about us as a society and our values. It's Yeah, it seems to me there's been very, very little mourning in, in well, the I mean, US. They, they've just pushed it they've, out of sight, out of mind. And one of the complaints that I have about the media is they emphasize like young, attractive, like, I believe that every single young, attractive white woman who has died from COVID has been profiled in the media. Okay. I think that the media wants you to think that it could be anybody and it could be especially these precious people. Well, well what I found really interesting about that coverage too is um, uh, the, the age range that they look at for that, right? So um, yes, I mean, the, certainly the, the mortality rate is through the roof if you're 80 years old and so on. And, and uh, in our county, for example, every day when you have new new deaths in that age range, they just list the ages and that's it. But what, what's what's fascinating to me is um, that's also the case for the the fifty five year olds, the sixty year olds. You know, the the forty year olds will get a write up in the paper. Yes. Uh, the, yeah. the the twenty something year olds certainly will get a write yeah. up. Yeah. Um, but but even even the fifty five year olds uh, get lumped in with that. <laughs> yeah. If you're if you're if you're a if you're an old Gen X, it's got to you got to be a young Gen X. No, you got, actually you just got to be a millennial. If you're a millennial, you'll get a write up. It's, it's generational discrimination. If you're Generation X, no. If you're Boomer, no. If you're silent, hell no. You know, I mean, so I mean, the thing with the nursing homes is like I I've only read a couple of things that, because it's like painful to read. It's we have a sociological problem that you know I knew intellectually in an abstract way, where the way we in quote developed societies treat our old people is that we rationalize them just like we rationalize everything in the economy. And so you take your parent, you put them in a nursing home and they're taken care of by people who get paid money. What could go wrong? So in normal day to day, that's fine. You know, even though there are abuses, we all know about it. I'm just saying like, they will take care of them for money, but now there's a pandemic that they can catch as well from these old people who are miserable, 
who need extra care and attention. What I read sounds like hell. Um, this is not the way that you would treat your own, because you want these people to treat your parents like, like they would treat their own parents, but they're never going to. They're not blood. That's not how it is, okay? It's like we've rationalized it. We don't want to think about it. And so the things that I read in the nursing homes, I'm like, oh, this, you know, this makes sense in a way because these are people who are probably being paid minimum wage to take care of old people. Um, and, you know, a lot of it's like really uncomfortable. There's some gross things. And now they're like really sick and they can be contagious to you. You know, what, what, what's uh, been, been fascinating to me, too, is uh, these these horrific cases uh, where several bodies are found days after death and they've never been reported and so on aren't just happening in, you know, nursing homes in New Jersey and things, but even even places like Spain, um, you know, in, in, in cultures where that's not, um, yeah. you know, where, yeah, where you... traditional. Yeah. But it's becoming more traditional everywhere. And like old people, a lot of them, they want their freedom. You know, I mean, they, they want to live alone. I mean, sometimes it's difficult to get them to like give up their house, you know, like, and I know this personally um, from, you know, anyway, through my extended family and, you know, that can be a problem. So we have freedom and we have this like, you know, great economy that provides services to give us this freedom. But I think the problem is we also see that they're the flip side of freedom where um, when push comes to shove, when nature, red in tooth and claw, comes at us, all of a sudden you understand why people live in these extended family units where people can distribute labor and, and things like that, where it's not just about the money, but it's about um, just a community and it's about helping your you know relative, helping your friend, these sorts of things. I feel like we've lost a lot of that. Not everybody um, not every community and not every person, but I know a lot of people who are very alone right now. Um, quarantine has not been that difficult for me because I'm with my wife and I'm with my kids. Um, you know, my, I am with my family really, as we understand it in the United States, but there are friends that I have who are single, who their lives were socializing with their crew. And so, you know, sometimes like they have to create pods, whatever. I'm just saying those people underwent are undergoing or underwent something very different in quarantine than I did. And that's because of the way we live and arrange our society where people can live alone and have all their conveniences and not be bugged by their parents or roommates or their siblings and all these other things. But the flip side of that is when the water recedes, just you, that's it. So like, I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know what to say. Because I didn't think we were this society. I didn't think Europe was that society. Like, read the article in the New York Times about Belgium. Uh, the government was quite clearly giving the go-ahead, not explicitly, but through some channels, for emergency um, paramedics not to pick up COVID-positive people that were dying in nursing homes in Belgium for a while. Because they wanted to keep the hospitals free for people that were more valuable actuarially. You know, they were making the calculation. And so um, I think that it's been a good opportunity in some ways for genetic science, as you know. Um, you know, some companies have gotten on board with COVID testing and sequencing and doing all sorts of things. And there's been some good research that's come out of it. But um, it's been a horrible indictment about the so 
sociology and political science of this country. Not the science. The science has been okay. I think the science has done what it can do. And the primary problem is we had a state capacity issue where um, I think, you know, Grant, I think uh, most people, quote, in the know were starting to get seriously terrified by the middle of February. And then when Iran hit around February 20th, I remember screaming at what Donald Trump was doing going to India right now when he needed to just like start start like really turning the ship around February 20th. As it is, it was closer to March 15th. Those three weeks were when New York became what it became. That's when New York was seeded. I think we could have dodged New York. I think we could have dodged that that horrible thing that happened in New York, New Jersey, and to some extent Connecticut if Trump had started on February uh, 20th. I think if he had started on February 1st, I think um, honestly where our society is, I think the resistance would have said he was being insane. They would have eventually come around, but I think for a long time they he would have been attacked because he shut down the economy and did this and that. And, you know, it's only some like dumb Silicon Valley bros and paranoid people and a couple of epidemiologists. So I think that would be too early. Ideally, he would have started that early, but I'm just it wouldn't be feasible. But I think by February 14th, I think enough people were that he could have done something and he didn't. But you know what? Um, Cuomo didn't do anything either, did he? De Blasio didn't either. So it's not just a Republican. It's not a, this is not a left right thing. Actually, there's a, a lot of blood on a lot of people's hands in our society, in our elites. And um, I don't think that they will be held accountable. They weren't held accountable in 2008 um, when the financial crisis happened, when, you know, a lot of people made a lot of money and the government as a whole bailed out the system, you know? Um, Well, and and people are upset. And um, honestly, it seems like a lot of the anger is directed at the measures as opposed to people warning the the deaths of the virus or, or or people being upset with the incompetence with which it's often been handled. Yeah, I, I mean, so I think part of the issue is there's been weird, um, weird enforcement and weird fixations. Um, and some of it's ideological. So like Florida people on beaches, bad. Um, Black Lives Matter protesters, good. Um, that was pretty obvious. Uh, also, the, remember that um, the Ozarks, uh, the party in the Ozarks, that was the first big thing that the media, and it's obviously like, you know, okay, let's just like come out and say it, like rednecks in the Ozarks, these are bad people, they're doing something bad. Well, it turned out there wasn't that much transmission at all, from what I know, because it was outside. If it's outside, it's probably not that bad. BLM is probably not, those protests probably not that bad. Um, but um, so the outside stuff, not bad. Inside stuff, bad. Right. So when I hear Biden saying we should have masks outside, I'm like, uh, you know, mandatory masks outside is probably overkill. I mean, you don't want to do so much that people don't believe you. I think that there is a problem with some credibility there um, that people need to be more measured. They also need to talk about the fact that we're working with the best science we have and that might change. And we apologize if we lead you wrong because they did. They have and we will. Um, there's there needs to be more humility, less screaming. Um, also, some people are just using it to kind of be self-righteous prigs, you know, um, that's just, that doesn't, that's not getting us anywhere. Like you need to, you need to persuade people with the facts and also like show empathy. Like you're trying to persuade someone, not because you want to be right, but because you want to, them to live. You know, it's like sometimes I hear some people like listen, like talking, or I see things written and I feel like you're kind of just showing off about how you're right and they're wrong instead of actually writing in a way that that um 
indicates to me that you actually care that these people survive. And some of the stuff that, you know, I've heard people just in my social circle or the media, you know, say about like, you know, people dying in red states, they're almost like happy that these people are being insane, you know? And I'm like, a lot of them are socioeconomically the same type of people that are like, you know, Latino field workers in Riverside. I mean, you know, they're working agriculture, they're in rural areas. And uh, I, I don't really, th th this seems really inappropriate to me. Like you're, you're missing the forest from the trees and what's important. Um, we have a pandemic in this country. It's about people dying and it's not about who's dying, you know? And, you know, on the other side, like I have heard things about like when it was happening in New York and New Jersey where people were just like, well, it's a, it's a blue state problem. And the fact that we are hearing things like this, that people even say this out loud, shows you the problem we're in in this country. Like, you know, if you're saying it's a blue state problem, it's a red state problem, you know, what Obama would have said in 2004 is, you know, there is no red America or blue America, but I guess that's very 2004. Like, it's done. That's over. I don't know. I'm, I'm being very pessimistic here, but I don't, um, I don't see, like, a unifying vision right now. Um, I don't see a society that can stitch itself back together. Um, you know, COVID-19, like sometimes these sorts of external shocks can bring people together. And I feel people were brought together for like kind of like a month or two. And then it just all kind of unwound in May. And a lot of it was just like economic pressure, which a lot of people have been under. Um, and that's difficult. I mean, we, there's just like a lot of difficult conversations that I feel like people are not having compassionately. And I think that's been the ultimate problem. Um, when people are acting out in a crazy way, sometimes there's a reason, you know, and, you know, I have friends who are academics and I'm like, you have like a tenure job at an R1 university, like your salary is going to keep getting paid indefinitely. I mean, yeah, the university could lay you off, but that's very unlikely with the type of job you have. Okay. Um, so, and you can do social distancing, you can stay inside. Um, there's a lot of people who are living paycheck to paycheck they're not in that situation. And this is why they're not being as rational as you, not just because they're stupider. I mean, they're probably not as intelligent, whatever, but really like they have no options. They're desperate. There's that survey that showed that like 30% of young adults have thought about suicide in the last six months. And it's obviously an increase. I think some of it is like hysteria and scaremongering because young adults are not at risk of dying from COVID, but some of it is also like, okay, like they don't have a job. Where are they going to get a job? What is the future of this country? You know, it's just, it's, there's a lot of hopelessness, you know, and instead of us stepping up, our elites stepping up to COVID-19, we've kind of fallen down on the job. That's how I'm feeling right now at the end of the summer of 2020, like maybe something will change and turn around and I'll be smiling and I'll be happy. But I stopped, you know, Grant, Grant we've talked about this. Um, I stopped paying close attention to COVID in June just because it didn't seem like we had what it took to really attack it. And so I'm just like, I will continue doing my quarantine as best as I can. And that's it. I'm not, I'm not going to like, there's only so many people I can talk to only so many people I can convince. Like we did convince our family and friends that we could go into quarantine early. That took a lot of work in March. That's done. And as far as like the rest of society, um, I don't want, you know, like I'm not one of those people that's like, Oh, you don't wear a mask. You should die. Okay. I, I want to convince people that aren't doing it why they should. Okay. And I'm also not, I mean, but I'm also going to express my alarm. I mean, I have friends who are just like, you shouldn't be alarmed. Like this isn't that bad. And, you know, it's just that when I read about the way people die, it's bad. 
Um, the only hope, the positive spin I will put on it, I just actually had another uh, podcast today that I recorded with someone about COVID. And I say, like, I do think the herd immunity is probably a little lower than 50% for various reasons. Um, so it will end even if we don't get a vaccine. And, um, you know, we'll pick up the pieces and figure out, like, what this means for us. Because I think after it ends, I feel like people can take a breath and kind of take stock. And I don't know if they're going to be happy with what they conclude about our society. I know, I know, I don't think that we we fully like processed it uh, because it's not over. We're still in it, you know. Like we're still like waking up every day, um, checking the news, you know, checking in our family and you know, our friends, and you know, more and more, more and more of my friends have gotten COVID nineteen. Um, I mean, not that many, but some of them have tested positive and they had the symptoms, and um, you know, so it's it's going through my network right now, but um, uh, I don't know, um, just kind of kind of on a pause right now. And I feel like our society is on a pause, but COVID-19 is not on a pause. Um, it looks like it looks like it's slowly winding through and we might be incompetent enough that herd immunity is what protects us. So on that down note, that's my COVID talk. <laughs> I don't know. I shouldn't laugh. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, what do I do? This is like a, a nervous laugh. Yeah. If I were forced to uh, pro- prognosticate about it. Uh, Dark times, man. I, I think there's a good chance we're going to to hit some kind of a, you know, I don't know about a, a, a real herd immunity, but at least a, you know, an effective herd immunity, transient herd immunity under conditions of social distancing uh, before we get to a vaccine. Well, so um, I don't know. I think this will change. I think, Coronavirus will change some things. Um, I don't know if I'm ever going to shake hands again. I'm just, it, yeah. it was always one of those things where I kind of did it because of social pressure. I just didn't really want to touch someone's hand. I don't know where they are, what they've been doing, who, and also like in business, when you shake someone's hand, I'm always thinking like, okay, like how many hands has this person shook today? You know, I'm not just shaking your hand, dude. I mean, like, you know, I'm Gen X. Like I went through like the HIV training and, that took okay. Like I, I, I extrapolated, so I'm not gonna shake hands. Um, there was some stuff out today about how teens are not having sex and not like interested in it. You know, I think this is gonna affect a lot of people with personal contact until we have a vaccine. Um, but even after a vaccine, like this is the first big infectious disease that we've had that has hit our public consciousness this way and had this impact since the 1918 flu. I know the 1957 um flu was as bad as this in terms of mortality but our culture was not Im- impacted in the same way um we no one talked about it it's very strange there are some newspaper reports Contrast. about it people died but the, the the economy did not get hit that badly um well i mean it, it didn't imprint on on people's consciousness right like yeah. sure it was it was in the papers and people working in hospitals obviously noticed and yeah. some people knew, knew some folks who died and so on but it um it wasn't it wasn't really remarkable at the time. Yeah, the world is different, and like our economy, like you know, the downswing was as big as the Great Depression in some ways. I mean, it's obviously structurally different, but you know, I mean, okay, like this was worse than two thousand eight. It's worse than anything since World War Two. You know, like Great Leap Forward was really bad. There's bad things that happened after World War Two locally, but this is, I think, the biggest global event since World War Two. So how can it not affect us psychologically? How can it not change us in terms of how we see, like when I, when I see movies or TV shows where people are in bars, I get the heebie-jeebies, you know? 
Like, I think that'll eventually fade, but it's going to take a long time. And I think there's going to be a lot of people on the margin who are already germaphobic who are just going to say, you know what? I lived through 2020. I don't want to take the risk. I don't want to take the risk. I will drink at home. Or, like, if you're going to invite me to drink, like, got to be a patio place. Um, I know that, like, no, and, and the virus, I mean, the virus probably isn't going to disappear, right? It could be uh, we, we may get We may get control of it. Yeah. Um, but it'll still probably crop up here and there. It'll be endemic, yeah. And so that's what we're talking about. I mean, that's what we're seeing in places like New Zealand that controlled it. Like, it just creeps back in. So until until it evolves and gets us virulent, which it might not, um, you know, I think it's going to be here to stay. Now, that does mean, you know, work, demand for services of, you know, biological scientists. So, you know... Um, you know, undertakers did really well during the Black Death, I'm assuming, you know, I mean, <laughs> there's work for people even in a time of COVID-19. Um, I, so I, in a way, I feel like the economic and even the mortality impact is going to be dwarfed by the cultural social impact. So, you know, um, you know, we have small children, Grant, and, you know, they just kind of accept coronavirus. My three-year-old, will yell coronavirus at people if they walk too close to him when he's on the front yard, you know. Um, my three-year-old is also really morbid. He thinks all old people die of coronavirus. <laughs> Someone recently died and, you know, that we know. And he's like, did he die of coronavirus? And we're just like, dude, there's other disease. Like, he doesn't know any other diseases. Like, all he knows is about coronavirus. People talk about coronavirus. And, um, I mean, I don't know how the, my kids get the news, you know, like, my son has like kind of brownish skin and he's scared of the police, you know, not, a, not even joking. He's just telling me he should be scared of the police. So I'm like, don't worry about it. You know, I, I don't know. It's just like, you don't know how kids find out these sorts of like, as adults, we're trying to like, you know, pay the bills and not get sick and got these little kids running around all these little kids. And like, what are they thinking? You know, um, it's just like really weird for them because uh, I have a sister who has a newborn or an infant and, um, this, we don't know if she's scared of stranger or he's scared of stranger. He's never seen a stranger. <laughs> you know? Never seen a stranger, right? So I've seen, seen doctors, seen parents, and seen grandparents. That's it. Those are the only people that this three-month, that three-month-old child has ever, like, seen up close, right? So um, it's, uh, I think we need to think of the social impacts is the big thing about COVID-19. Because I think we know what the Great. PFR is, you know, one percent. I don't know something like that. And actually, um, so so you know, you mentioned one positive uh, thing about the uh, you know herd immunity threshold possibly being uh, lower than anticipated. Um, uh, I'm not sure, but you know, we'll we'll see. Time will tell. But uh, the the CFR. Um, I mean, does seem to be to be going down. So the mortality in in hospitals, the, the unadjusted apparent mortality is is yeah, I mean, down dramatically. And also, also the people who are the people who are getting it are the less. I mean, unfortunately, the more vulnerable people probably got hit first. Well, even 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 adjusting for um, uh, you know the various risk demographics and so on, um, uh, mortality in the hospital is still down substantially from the beginning of the pandemic it looks like it's down about 40 percent um so um 
you know, treatments from remdesivir and all these things, right? I mean, it seem to be making a difference. And maybe people are getting initial viral loads they're a bit lower because they're they are keeping better distance. They're yeah. wearing masks. Uh, you know, if you're sitting right next to someone at, at at a bar in New York City before they really realized what was happening, yeah, uh, you probably would have gotten a, a higher initial. Well, I mean, so I think, you know, my discussion of COVID-19 has been very pessimistic. I think from the purely biomedical perspective, I'm cautiously optimistic. I do think like, you know, we're putting a lot of like we as in like the world is putting a lot of resources into vaccine work. And I know that, you know, I, I understand vaccine vaccines are difficult to develop. It's not they're not trivial. Um, they're often not very effective. So I don't want to you know, over, oversell this, but everyone's focusing on this. I would not be surprised if we have a good vaccine in two years, for perhaps a year. I've heard that um, China and Russia is already vaccinating people, you know, and government and their army. So we'll know how those trials work. You know what I'm saying? They, they can they can take a few risks that we couldn't in the United States. So I think um, the treatment's going to get better. Uh, so I think the mortality will drop. So from a purely biomedical perspective, we will make it through this just like we did with the 57 flu or the milder 67 flu or 68 flu. Uh, so that's doable. I think what COVID-19 though has shown is what is what is the measure of a society? Unfortunately, um, if I had to bet, if we had like Mitt Romney, I think we would be doing considerably better. Okay, just like swapping out another Republican. I think Trump, to be frank, is tactical genius, but he has zero strategic vision. And so he's been going from thing to thing. So yeah, like, I mean, I think that's a problem, but I think we still would have had a problem with compliance, um, with localities doing their own thing. And so um, I think that that's a little disturbing because it's like- I think there would have been a lot of impatience. Yes, yes, yes. And in China, they're not gonna have impatience because the government will just like put you in prison, you know? Um, you know, so there, there, there are issues like that. I do think um, the positive, um, lesson would be like south korea which is an okay i mean south korea they say like oh there's been an outbreak but like if you look at the numbers compared to the united states even adjusting for population it's nothing you know like if we had south korea's problems we would be so happy you know and so um they have a test and trace capability in part because of previous scares so you know we are in this biotech space and i do wonder um you know just Things get more efficient as the demand increases, uh, the prices go down, it gets better and better. Why can't, I mean, we have great information technology. Why can't we have spit kits for everybody in the world? Like literally like everybody in the world. Yeah, like it will be like a, an expense that we have to take like every year or so to produce new spit kits and all these things. But um, it'll prevent what we just have gone through as a world, you know, this like, Law, massive loss of GDP, productivity, uh, psychological trauma, frankly. I don't know if I should say the word trauma, but I think a lot of people have been traumatized. Uh, there have been suicides in third world countries where people are, I mean, Americans are broke, but we're not broke, broke ever, even when we're broke, you know? Um, there have been suicides in India. People have, you know, people have starved in India, okay? So um, the outcomes can be quite deleterious. And so we just invested more in the technology to do what we need to do is test, trace, and contain. That seems to be the magic, quote, solution if we ever deal with something that's very similar. Whereas, like, you know, something like SARS, um, its r naught was lower, I think. And the issue with SARS is it wasn't as asymptomatic. You got it. You got it. 
you go to the hospital, you didn't spread it to other people. The problem with COVID is it hits this like sweet spot of being like 50% asymptomatic spreading it. And these are the people that are spreading it all over the place and they don't know. So if you had like good testing, good testing. Um, so like there's a local outbreak, just tell everyone to test, you know, like mail everyone a kit, just have it there. Why can't we do it? You know, like we have all of these like other things we have like cruise liners. We have this, you know, huge like industries that are just for consumption. Um, why can't we have this one thing to protect us against this tail risk, which is inevitable. There's going to be another infectious out disease outbreak in the next generation or two. So, um, you know, have the facility, obviously it's going to be, have to be a different test, you know, but a lot of the other things can be put in place. I mean, look at South Korea. I mean, they didn't have a test for COVID-19. They had to create one, but they had the whole framework set up. And so um, if we're still going to have a world health organization, get it done. You know, I think, I think that's, that's really uh, marching orders. Are you optimistic? Uh, the U S will do that. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. I mean, look, yeah, I yeah. I want to be note. optimistic, okay? Yeah. I'm optimistic yeah. about being optimistic someday. <laughs> I don't know. All right, good good stuff. <laughs> all right, cool. um, so all I, right. Think I, I think we're good. Um, so I guess I would say, though, is uh, even if I have a lot of pessimism and concern about what's happening in this country, um, I am still excited about the world and excited about science and excited about discoveries. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Um, uh, thank you so much for joining. It, it's, it's been a really fun conversation.